Green with High Performance Podcast, where we share with you the stories, tips, tricks, and strategies of motocross and off-road races, health and fitness experts, and everyone in between who has an inspiring story to share. Hey there, we've got Coach Rob back on the podcast this episode. Another Q&A, we're getting through a few questions this episode, but more based around training, both on and off the bike. So... As I mentioned last episode, if you've got any questions that you would like answered, don't hesitate to to send them through. We've still got a few in the bank that we haven't got through yet, but we'll do our best to make sure we get them answered in upcoming episodes. As you can hear, Rob is a boat has a boatload of knowledge and he goes into quite he goes into quite a bit of detail with his answers. He doesn't just doesn't just give you a two a two line answer. So some of these questions we go into a lot of depth and and they actually take up a bit of time we went a bit over time on this one so um bear with us but i promise you if you if you have sent a question through it will get answered in an upcoming upcoming episode we're just trying to group them together into into sort of similar topics so we're not just going from one one to the other so heaps of again heaps of awesome knowledge in this one heaps of takeaways that you could apply with your own training um other thing i wanted to mention just quickly was Got that camp coming up at the Aubrey Wodonga motocross track, Northeast Victoria, with Coach Rob. We've still got a couple of places left there. If you want to secure a spot, you can get face-to-face, one-on-one time with Rob. Learn about all this stuff he talks about here, and not just the off-bike stuff, but on-bike technique as well. And you also get a Moto E training program to take away with you and follow with accountability um, and check-ins. From, from Coach Rob and myself after after the camp. So super good value. Um, I'd be jumping on that big time. I'll be there. I'll be at both of them, two, both the Australian ones. So I'm not going to miss out on them for sure. I'm looking forward to learning from the man in the flesh. So if you want to get on to that, just shoot Rob an email. There's a link on his website there. You can get in touch with him and, and secure a place for that one. Otherwise, like I said, any questions, shoot them through to me. Shoot me an email insta message make sure we get them answered and any other feedback you've got about the podcast be more than happy to hear it thank you take a listen to this one I'm sure you'll love it Asked this week to go through a few questions we've had from listeners based a bit more around training this week how have you been rob doing great man good uh, good morning to you yeah thank you good to have you back on uh it's, a, it's an honor i uh Really appreciate all the feedback everybody's been giving us. So it's it's good to be back, and thank you so much for the opportunity. And want to say a big thanks to everybody who's doing the downloads. We uh, deeply appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. It has been great, and I keep getting more every every week. I get a message or two from people who've listened to the past podcast, loving them. So definitely good Perfect. to hear. Perfect. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So this week, I thought we had a few questions based a bit more last week. Last episode, we sort of covered the nutrition stuff. So this week, we've got a bit of stuff, a bit more based around training. Perfect. So, so we'll get into them straight away. Okay. This sounds great. Looking forward to seeing what they have to ask. So the first one is from Trent. So we kind of touched on this in the last episode when we were talking about fat adaption and nutrition. Um, his question was simply, is faster cardio a good or a bad thing? What are your thoughts about that? I think it's a fantastic thing to do as long as you're willing to look at what is the fatigue levels of the body coming in. So for example, if you have an athlete that you've worked pretty hard, I'm just going to use an even week. Let's say you pushed them hard on Monday. I don't think a fasted cardio workout on Tuesday is good because 
you've already kind of drained the system a little bit. And you've got to remember when you're doing an intermittent fast like that, because you're essentially going through the night and then starting that first cardio workout with no calories in, it's going to do everything the book says. It's going to leverage stored body fat. It's going to do all those benefits, but also recognize, think about it like a motorcycle. If a motorcycle doesn't have enough lube in the, in the engine casings, it's going to run hot. It's going to be stressful on the system. And whether it's going to pull the radiator system down or it's going to pull you know, some component of the motor down, you're exactly the same way. If you remember what we said in the last episode, me personally, I only do fasted cardio only during preseason because all the other stress variables are down. We're not doing lots of speed work. We're not doing lots and lots of intensity. So with that being said, if I've got somebody on a 10 hour block, if they do one, maybe two of those a week, fasted, they're going to reap all the benefits. It goes back to what we said in the last episode. Always think about residual fatigue, both coming in and the ramifications afterwards, because a fasted bike ride is going to create stress on the system. I'm not saying it's a bad stress. It's an adaptive stress, but is the body ready for the stress coming in other than the domino effect? So if I've got a tired body and then I throw a fat excuse me, a fasted bike ride or row session, by the time I get to Wednesday, I may be in crash and burn mode. So it is definitely beneficial, but you've got to plot it in at exactly the right time. So great question though. Thank you for that, Trent. Yeah, absolutely. So what what do you recommend for your, when you are giving your clients those fasted workouts, obviously they're that low intensity. So they're in that fat burning state is a goal are you giving are they taking on any nutrition at all through that workout or are they staying purely fasted no it's a great question it depends on the duration so if you think about what we mentioned in the last podcast the typical individual has between 60 and 80 minutes of stored sugar i.e glycogen in their liver and their muscles so if i'm working with a professional triathlete I'll have them do a three-hour bike ride, and they don't touch calories for two hours. Yeah. The last hour, they can go ahead and hit a few calories. Um, I've even, I don't want this to be confusing, but I've done some fasted rides where the first two hours is aerobic. The last hour is a heart rate ladder in zone three, just to change it up. Now, they do introduce calories before we start that ladder. I don't want to answer a question with a question. It really is based on if they're going to do 60 to 80 minutes, yeah, I don't let them touch calories at all. In fact, what we focus on is as as soon as you're done with that workout, go sit down directly to a meal because of the glycogen synthase enzymes at its highest. If you remember, that's the enzyme that improves the glycogen retention in the liver and the muscles. So if it's between 60 and 80 minutes, I don't think you need anything, including water. After that, I would look at going ahead and moving into some very easily digestible carbs. Now, one of the things that we can talk about in a future episode is the inverse relationship between complexity of calories and the heart rate. There's got to be an inverse relationship with that. Because somebody's coming in in a fasted mode, we would not introduce calories when we start going a little bit faster. And then the calories have to be simplistic and easily digestible. Gels, blocks, sports drinks. Yeah. So a little bit more to the equation and I don't ever want the listeners to get frustrated like oh my goodness it's so technical, but I don't want them to go hurt themselves either. 
Yeah, for sure. I want all your listeners to be willing to go at least one or maybe two steps lower than the average listener because what you don't know could literally hurt you. You know, people want to throw out, yeah, intermittent fasting, that could hurt you. Oh, fasted workout, that could hurt you. Both can benefit you if it's applied correctly, not to be obvious, but, you know, that's the thing that we don't want is somebody to take one ideology, take it out of context and bake themselves. That would be, I'd be more mortified if they did that. Absolutely. Yeah. So that, I think that's why it's so, so important. It's something I've, I guess, to be completely transparent, I've done incorrectly in the past years and years ago when I first started, I guess, experimenting with a bit of intermittent fasting and fasted training was going way too hard in those fasted workouts, those yep. fasted rides and not keeping the intensity low enough. Yep. Well, and, and you've heard me talk about this over and over again. I'm always looking at the ramifications and the byproduct of what we do going in. It's real easy, especially when you get into elite, elite, elite level racing. These mm. athletes, they're, the biggest challenge we have is holding them back, not pushing them, not motivating them, but yeah. rather holding them back so they don't hurt themselves. Yeah, That seems counterintuitive because people hire us to go out and push them to that next level when really they don't need more pushing. They need more retrain. They need to be, they need to retrain their thinking and understand why am I doing what I'm doing and what's the long-term ramifications daily, weekly, monthly, and annually. You know, you've heard me say this before. People will tell me that HIT training, high intensity interval training, it's going to produce extra testosterone and it stimulates HGH and also you're right on paper. But that's like telling me that you're going to take a motorcycle that has 100 hours on it and that bike is fresh to go on a very difficult course. The body's the same way. Why would you take a body that's already tired, dehydrated, sore, has a lot of microfilament tears in the muscle tissue, and you're going to throw all that aside and say the training schedule says do this, even though your body's going, we're not ready. We're, we're, we're a bike with 100 hours on it. How about letting it rest and recover and maybe come back two days later? Remember, you and I have talked about this previously. Most athletes work too hard on their easy days, which leaves them flat on their quality days, so the net gain is zero. Yeah. That's our job is to help them understand it and then how to build the framework for it. So hopefully that makes more sense. You know, these individual ideas have to be put into a bigger picture of application, not just taken for face value. Yes, yeah, certainly. Yeah, some good info there. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, great question, Trent. So we've got a couple from Casey next. So he mentioned that he actually heard you on one of your other podcasts. I think the Coach Rob podcast um, mentioned that stretching before riding is not ideal. So he just wanted to know your thoughts around that and perhaps what you would recommend before you jumped on the bike in terms of in terms of a warm up. Well, thanks for listening to the other podcast, Casey. I appreciate it. The, the, the reason why I don't want you to stretch before you exercise is the human heart is the only organ that the body cares about. That's why we suffer from frostbite when we get in the cold because the blood's going to draw up around the heart to keep the, war, the heart warm and to keep it safe and alive. So think about frostbite the same way as a warm-up. When you're laying in bed at night, the heart is going to get all the centralized blood. That's why when you stand up in the middle of the night to go to the restroom, you kind of get tingly feet as you walk because you've just gone from horizontal to vertical. The blood's got to go away from the heart. Obviously, gravity pulls down. If the blood is up around the heart, 
that means there's less warm blood in the tissue. So think about a piece of metal. If I take a cold piece of metal and I bend it, it's going to become brittle and it breaks. If I heat it up, I put it in the sun or I put something on it to warm it up, I can bend it back and forth many, many times before it will actually shear. Your yeah. muscles are the same way. The only thing that lets a muscle go through its normal range of motion is the tissue needs to dilate. It lets warm 98.6 degree blood come into those extremities. And then the muscle can extend and contract without the risk of tearing. That's the main reason why we want you to go to some form of sport specific activity. That way, and it gets into some physiology that most people don't think about. If you're getting ready to go ride and you do a mountain bike ride through the parking lot, or you get on a concept two rower, or you do a, a, a skier at the gym before you start working out, you're literally sending a message to your brain that says, Hey, look, we're getting ready to exercise. It reprograms the whole body and says, okay, we got to get blood to the working muscles. You're sending a notice that lactic acid's about to be produced. Doesn't mean it's going to be wide open, but it's going to accumulate. As we're all sitting here listening to this podcast, we're producing lactic acid. But our, ba- our bodies are able to assimilate it and dispose of it so we don't ever feel it. But if you and I dropped the, the microphone and we ran around the block as fast as we could, we'd feel lactic acid real fast. Yeah. And the same rule applies. The warm-up gets the tissue, um, it gives the body a message to say, hey, let's go ahead and start pushing blood away from the heart and start going to the extremities. Now the temperature of the tissue warms up. And now after 10 or 15 minutes of, of cardio, which we'll, we'll address this question about how to do it correctly. Now all of a sudden the tissue's warm. If you've got any kind of tightness, it'd be a great time to go ahead and start stretching it. The idea here is, is we've got to get the blood away from the heart. We've got to let the body know that the accumulation of lactic acid is coming. And then the, the literally the entire environment is ready. This is why you'll notice you're always stronger the second or third set of a workout than you are the first because the brain has got a process. I'm lifting 15 kilos. I'm lifting 40 kilos. I'm lifting 100 kilos. Yeah. It's kind of that joke that I've said to you. You go to grab um, some milk in the refrigerator and you think it's completely full. Well, your brain has done it enough over the years that it knows how much force to exert until you find out that the, the jug is half empty and you end up throwing it through the roof of the refrigerator. Yeah, That's a perfect sign of your brain is programmed to put X amount of force into that tissue to lift it up only to find it's not as full. Think of the warm-up exactly the same way. You want me to go out and race at really, really top effort? How about priming the system to let me know? You notice how many riders come back to you and say, if we just had two more laps, I would have won the race. That's because they used the first half of the race to get warmed up. And by the time they got up to speed, they run out of time. Yeah, That's why we say the warm-up is so vitally important. We do it. At, you'll hear me say this quite often. The way that you test the body should emulate the way you train and the way you race should emulate the way you, that you test. So if you don't test yourself on a regular basis, you're asking your body to perform at a level it's not familiar with. It's never going to perform optimally. Yeah. Very, very important. Your body doesn't know what we call them zip codes in the state. What do you guys call them? <clears throat> yeah. Postcode. Postcode. Yeah. Your body doesn't know what postcode you're in. It's saying a throttle, a brake, and a clutch. 
It doesn't know if it's Monday or Thursday. It doesn't know if it's Saturday or Monday. It doesn't know what postcode. It's like, okay, we know what's expected. If you can create an environment to let that body perform optimally, you're golden. Yeah. Now, now to Casey's question about, <clears throat> pardon me, to answer Casey's question about the warm up, I always say the warm up ideally is 20 minutes long. Yep. What I like to do is for those that train with a heart rate monitor, do not let your heart rate go above heart rate zone two for 10 minutes. Sends a lot of neuromuscular messages. Hey, things are getting going. Then for the next 10 minutes, go 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off. Not guts to the wall. Just kind of prime the engine a little bit. Just kind of burn, burn, burn. You're just trying to bring the revs up a little. Yeah. What you're doing is you're slowly accumulating lactic acid. And when you get off the, the bicycle, the rower, whatever you're using, jumping rope, whatever, you get your helmet on. You go out there, your heart rate's already up 120, 130, 140, because you kind of primed the pump a little bit. That's the best warm up ever. Yeah. That's the best warm up. Now, during those accelerations, if you feel something kind of getting tight, that's when you'd want to stop and stretch. But a 20 minute block is good. If you're extremely fit and you're no, you know that you're more of a, a diesel engine, you come on stronger the second half. Do it for 30 minutes, you know, go 15 to 20 minutes of even, and then just prime the pump for 10 minutes, put your helmet on and go hit the track. That's not always logistically possible, but that's the best way to do a warm up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you think like something like a skipping rope is the best option if you don't have a rower or a cycle to jump on? Pretty easy to carry a skipping rope around with you to the track. That's it. I don't know what you guys call them. We call them military spiders where you put your hand up against something and your legs come up underneath you. Uh, some people call them Jacob's ladders or things like that, where you're just bringing your knees up underneath your chest. Yeah, I think we call them mountain climbers over here. Okay. Yep. So yeah, mountain climbers sure. yep. because the quadricep is the largest consumer of oxygen. Yeah. And when you're on the starting line and you transition from sitting up on the bike and you're pulling back trying to get a good start, those quads are the largest producer of lactic acid <clears throat> out of any muscle in the body. So jumping rope gets the quads activated, gets your calves activated, gets the eye-hand coordination activated for the drop of the gait so your reaction time is quick. Just little tricks. Yeah, yeah. I would awesome. say this way, if, you don't, if you've got a long stage weight, you need to learn how to warm up with a long stage weight. You can do everything back at your truck that you want, but if you go sit in staging for an hour, you've already cooled back down. That's not going to help you at all. Yeah. So, hopefully yeah, that so helps. What, what do you recommend in those situations that we're trying to just keep moving in the staging area with sort of body weight, movement, stuff like that to keep blood flow up? It's a combination of two things. If you've got more than 30, 40 minutes, I'd say sit in the shade and just relax. And then that last 20 minutes as you're making your way towards the gate, jump rope, mountain climbers, uh, some burpees, some push-ups, get the front of the body, the back of the body, the top of the body, the legs, Get the heart rate up. That's why these heart rate monitors, in my opinion, are beautiful because it takes the guesswork from the athlete. You don't want to be sitting on the gate at a heart rate of 80 and then go to 160. You want to be on the starting gate at 120, 130 so that gap isn't so – because you got to remember when that lactic acid drops into the body, it could be a shell shock, and it mm. you could be slowing yourself down just because you didn't warm up properly. Absolutely, That's a huge yeah. frequent mistake that people make. 
Yeah, for sure. It's interesting. If you watch the outdoor nationals, you watch Roxon. Roxon's one of the few that stands behind the starting gate and is constantly moving. Yeah. Yep. And I think so far this year, he's had some pretty good starts. I was going to say, yeah, he's been up there. <laughs> yeah. Yep. As he's his been... health is coming around. I was going to say, he seems to be getting over that, which is good to see. Like he's been able to lay down a, a 30 minute moto at a pretty decent pace. So he's obviously getting yeah. some, getting some progress there with that. Well, think about it this way, you know, if you want to use the word adrenal fatigue or um, electrolyte depleted or whatever it is, you got to ask yourself, how deep is the hole you're in? And so you do these IV therapies and you do everything you can naturally to kind of build it back up. Well, I think all during Supercross, he's working so hard that he's now hitting a saturation point that his body's like, okay, let's go. Mm. Because if you look at how he finished the Supercross season, people are like, he's still not healthy. Then he got into outdoors. He had two weeks off, so he's not draining the body every day. Yeah. And all of a sudden, he comes out and he can finish a 30-minute moto. Now, I, I understand it's not been extremely hot yet, but the idea, in my opinion, is I believe that his body is starting to actually absorb and assimilate what he's been doing for the first five months of the year. We're seeing the tail of what he's done for six months. Yeah. It just happened coincide with the outdoor nationals in my opinion yeah. I, yeah, yeah, I don't absolutely. just in 100 transparency i don't know roxon i don't have them on my cell phone none of that i'm just speculating off of what i know from a physiology standpoint and looking at his performance he just seems to keep getting better and better every week and i think that's because he's absorbing what he's been doing that's my opinion yeah absolutely do you think I was thinking about that after we saw it? I think we t- we talked about Roxon off air last time, but do you think a, like that sort of his bit of a dip in the Supercross season seemed to sort of correlate with that like that other stress he had going on with his training injury and himself, things like that? And we've spoken about that how all that stuff that co- that contributes on you as well. Um, so he's I guess, notice there as well, do you think, from those other stresses? I agree with you 100%. I think people have underestimated, not intentionally, but I think people have underestimated, you know, he had that horrific crash. He came back from that. Then he gets his arm caught up in Webb's wheel. Then right after that, you know, his brother-in-law gets paralyzed. You think about the mental stress of all of that. Mm. Then, you He's, he's struggling with the bike. He's in contract negotiations. I mean, as you know, we just he got a three-year extension just, what, a month ago. As much as people want to say that as racers and human beings, we're tough and we can push through it and all of that. Still human. You're still human, and I think people <laughs> yeah. misunderstand. I always use the analogy of a, a teeter-totter. And the bottom of that is where you're supposed to be balanced. But when the stress and stress comes in multiple forms. It could be professional. It could be financial. It could be relationship. In your and I's relationship, we only look at it from an athletic and performance standpoint. That's only one silo of all of these categories of stress. So if the stress category starts to get out of balance, and the only thing that you can counterbalance it with is sleep and food, if that stays out of balance, you're literally struggling every time you go out. Yeah. That's why I think people need to, and without jumping into a completely different subject, when you look at the subject of adrenal fatigue, the adrenal system, and I want all the listeners to understand that, think about the adrenal system as a funnel. 
what the funnel is supposed to excrete is HGH, human growth hormone, and testosterone. HGH is what makes us leaner, and it's what allows us to recover from the load and the stress that we submit it to. Testosterone helps increase the red blood cell count, which means we have more oxygen and more energy. If the system, and again, visualize it as a funnel, if the system doesn't get the necessary ingredients in the top, which is high-quality fat, high-quality protein, high-quality carbohydrates, those are the macronutrients and micronutrients, they have to come into the top of the funnel, let the funnel in the adrenal system build the hormones that they're expected to excrete. Well, if you don't get enough sleep and food, and the adrenal system is des- it's designed as the system's only responsibility is to cope to stress. So you have you essentially have two stages. What's coming in, think about your motorcycle. If you don't put gas in the top, you don't get exhaust out the back. Yeah. Well, the adrenals can't excrete the hormones at the bottom, i.e. the exhaust pipe, without the necessary micro and macronutrients coming in the top. But we somehow think miraculously that you can push this system and push it and push it and push it, and you're going to deprive it because there's some of these new quote-unquote diets out there that say don't eat fruit because it has sugar in it, which is total bullshit. The vitamins and minerals that support your immune system and support your cardiovascular system, and in this conversation support the adrenals, if they don't get what they need coming in on the top, how do you expect them to excrete on the bottom? Now, you can sit and argue with me all day long. If I go into a state of ketosis, am I going to burn more stored body fat? Yes, that's called survival. That's how your body's been created. But if you don't give it its necessary ingredients, how do you expect it? How do you expect to get exhaust out the back of your bike if you don't put fuel in the top? That's the easiest illustration that I can draw. So when somebody's adrenals don't get what they want and the adrenals are designed to adapt and overcome stress, if you're overstressing a system and you're underfeeding it, that's how we get adrenal fatigue. Yeah. So like you said, when somebody's mental bucket is getting overworked, somebody gets paralyzed that you think a lot of, you're wondering about your contract negotiations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You're out, of, you're out of balance. Well, all those requirements just go up more, don't they? We need, when, we're, when our stress is, cortisol is elevated, stress is higher, we, we simply need more of those nutrients to, we use that funnel analogy to fill that funnel up, don't we? Yes, and you've got two little ones. Think about when your little ones are getting cranky. Do you say, hey, this is a great time to take them to the playground? Of course not. <laughs> you know, your wife is like, all right, then we're going to go feed. And then we're going to put them down for a nap. But we become adults all of a sudden, or we become athletes, and we think there's, the rules have changed. And I'm always amazed by that, because when we're young and when we're around young children, we know when their behavior is starting to show signs of fatigue and or hunger. And we do one of two things. We feed them and or put them down for a nap. Instead, as adults or as athletes, we go, nope, suck it up, buttercup, let's push through it. And then we wonder why we can't sustain it. And that's where we start getting long-term health ramifications. We get performance plateaus or descents. It's easy. If you don't counterbalance stress with food and sleep, you're always going to be out of balance. And if you're out of balance, you'll never perform optimally. It's literally that simple. I like what you said before we got recording tonight. When you've got an elite athlete and he's like, more is better. No, it's not. Mm. Harder is better. 
No, it's not. It's about knowing when to drop it in, knowing how to evaluate its results, and then being able to make adjustments tomorrow, next week, next training block, next year. But you got to have some thick skin. If you can't look at that and go, hey, you don't need more, you mean less. I shared with you before we went on the air, I have a 19-year-old pro racer. On paper, he should be able to go 12 to 15 hours a week because he has high levels of testosterone. We've tested it. He's young. He's vivacious. He does very few injuries, blah, 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 blah. I tested something by adding a second complete rest day, and his percentage of improvement in one month was up 5%. Now, this is somebody at 19. If I can get a half a percent, that's like money. We got that much improvement by adding, not, not by giving him more, but by giving him less. And at 19, I hope he's got another eight to 10 years of being able to race at an elite level. He's not winning championships yet, but he will. And when he does, he'll do it for four or five years when his bonuses are really big. Mm, That's when it really matters. Yeah, for sure. Not not that your listeners are all trying to get on factory Honda, but I still think it's important. You know, they want to do it right. Oh, absolutely. And that's the biggest thing. Like we all love racing. We love doing what we do. So the the more longevity you can have in the sport you love, then it's a win for everyone. That's exactly right. But it's being able to get the athletes to be able to look out a little bit broader and go, is what I'm doing today addressing my biggest physical weaknesses on the bike? And if I am, am I giving it the necessary support before, during, and after so that my continuum of improvement is always upward. We refer to that as an anabolic improvement. Most people look at anabolic as steroids. Mm. There's only two modes of the body. It's either in a mode of anabolic, which is growth, or catabolic, which is teardown. I always err on the side of caution to keep my athletes in a mode of anabolic growth because that's where it's healthy. When you're in a catabolic teardown mode, you're overtraining. And that's what we to adrenal fatigue, which then leads to health issues, which leads to career-ending issues. Yeah. I say this as humbly as I can. In 35 years, I've never had an athlete not finish a race. I've never had an athlete ever have a career shortened because of burnout, adrenal fatigue, or reoccurring injuries. Yeah. Now, I've also been fired because of erring on the side of caution. And I will go on public record as saying I've been fired more times because I err on caution because they hired me and said, especially the dads, moto dads from hell, I hired you to bust my kid's butt and you're not busting his butt. And I said, because his body's not ready for it. He's tired. Mm-hmm. All the biofeedback indicators show that he can't handle anymore. He needs less. So I get terminated because the dad wants to tell me that junior needs to do more. Yeah, And I try to educate the parents on why we're making this decision. Because remember what you and I always say, we don't make decisions on emotion. You do it on quantitative analysis. If the body doesn't show go, you don't push. If the hour meter shows a hundred, you don't, you don't push it. You rebuild. Yeah, And you got to do the same thing. So hopefully that resonates with the listeners, particularly the moto dads. Absolutely. And like you say, like adrenal fatigue, if there's anyone out there that's experienced, it's not a pleasant thing. So if not just like you're talking about, it can end someone's career, it can quite, can diminish their quality of life for a very long time. Well, I can give you a list of five or six people who adrenal fatigue has ended their career. Mm. And some of these guys had multiple year contracts. Think about that. 
Yeah. Can you, can you imagine having a multi-year contract and your contract did not go its full distance? Yeah. All because you chose to train too hard, too long and too often. Yeah. But we, you know, you and I don't live in a glass house. We recognize that if you're a pro and you've only got a two year deal, you're kind of like a, a government official. The first year you're trying to race the second year. You're just trying to keep your job. Yeah. When, when you're working with somebody and I always say it this way, winning your first championship is not hard. Retaining your championship is the harder part. But what I like to always say is if you understand the process and the system of what you're doing now, when you win the championship, you can look back and you know what got you to where you're at. You make some very minute adjustments and you build on that. That's what Villapoto did. That's what some of the greats have always done. Jeremy McGrath, Villapoto, Jeff Stanton, Jeff Ward. Those guys, they get into a small little box and you don't deviate too much from it. You adapt, but you don't gut it. That's what Barsha came out public and said, I had too many chiefs, not enough Indians. I listened to too many people and what used to work went away. Yeah. And we know the history of that story. We all do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But good, good questions all the way around. But uh, thank you, Casey, for that question. Yeah, we'll get into his next one. He's, his next one was around building aerobic base. So I actually know Casey and I know he's, he's just got himself a nice new Garmin to, to start tracking this stuff properly, which is awesome. So he, his question around building aerobic base um, when it's long and slow, should there be load uh, in terms of like some uphill or is, it, is the main goal to keep his heart rate in that, um, that aerobic zone too sort of stuff? Yeah, Think about it this, let me answer this question in twofold. You can go straight uphill as long as you have the strength to offset the load to keep you in heart rate zone two. If you think about a set of railroad tracks, on one side you have your strength base and on the other side you have your aerobic engine. If those two systems are developing together, you'll be able to do exactly that. You'll put out more force because you're stronger and because your aerobic engine is bigger, you're able to keep the heart rate low. I always like to give this analogy. Your strength base is the size of your piston and your motor. Your aerobic engine, for those of us that still have carburetors, is your carburetor. Yeah. Well, I, I, can, like take a four, I can take a 450 carb and put it on an 85, but that doesn't increase the power of the piston. Mm. Or I can take a 450 piston and try to feed it with a, an 85 carb. It's not going to give enough air fuel for the piston to do its job. That's why they, the two systems need to develop in unison together. Yeah. If, if he's out there trying to build as an aerobic engine, and there's, there's a caveat that I want to address here in a second, if he's got accurate and up-to-date heart rate zones, he can go climb 12, 14% grade if he's got the strength in the aerobic engine to do it and stay in zone two, especially when you can use the combination of gear ratios to change what that load level is on the system. Mm. But the caveat is, is I, in my, on my program, I have my athletes – max heart rate test every six to eight weeks, which usually falls in a particular training block. Yeah. Okay. So if my athlete is using an up-to-date heart rate zone, that's only six weeks old, because the way that we do that is we take max heart rate, we plug in your average resting heart rate, and you get a variable known as heart rate reserve. For your listeners who have requested the heart rate spreadsheet, that's the mathematical logarithm that's behind it. 
And there's a bunch of others. If you look at the formula at the top, the formula is like this long. There's a lot of if-thens that are in the formula. Yeah. But Casey can go out and climb in the hills and still stay in zone two as long as his heart rate zones are up to date. I always say that's how you're laser focused. You have the necessary strength. And then here's the third variable. If he can stay hydrated and maintain enough nutritional intake to sustain that aerobic ride in heart rate zone two. Yeah. I've heard people say, well, if I'm doing heart rate zone two, I don't need to consume calories. Not true. Okay. And that gets into a conversation that we can have on a future episode if you want to. And it goes back to as the intensity goes up, I said it earlier, the complexity of the food has to come down, but you also have to ask yourself, are you fueling yourself for something afterwards? For example, as, as I'm working with professional triathletes, I can fuel them on the bike, but it's really to set them up for a run. Yeah. But I can't eat something complex at the end of a bike ride and get off and run well. Mm. But if I have something like uh, an Ironman distance, what'd you say 112 is? Is that 180K? It is, yeah, for the Ironman. Okay. So if I get them to 100K on the bike, I can give them I can give them some peanut butter and honey or almond butter and honey. They can do that for the first 80, 90K, but after that 80, 90K, the complexity of food comes down because we start to pick up the speed. For the for listeners that understand it, that's what you and I refer to as a negative split. The second half is faster than the first. Well, you can't take heart rate up and keep the food complexity up. So in Casey's question, if he's out truly doing an even tempo two-hour bike ride, he can eat complex food because his heart rate is low. Yeah. But keep in mind that the, the, the energy that you have in your body, remember what we said earlier, stored glycogen, that is a lot easier to convert to energy than anything that you ingest in your mouth. Yeah. So that's why nutrition 24-7 is the most important component because it's the easiest, it is the easiest caloric source that your body can utilize for energy. Once that 80-minute window goes by and you have to rely on secondary, i.e. what you eat and drink, it's a little bit more complicated for the body to convert that to energy. It's not as efficient. It works, but it's not as efficient. So yeah. yeah. Aerobic Essentially your body's kind of trying to do two things at once too, isn't it? If you have, especially if you have it when you've still got muscle glycogen and you're having calories coming in, your body's kind of picking it, choosing from two buckets almost, isn't it? You're exactly right. Whenever we're exercising, whether we're on a motorcycle, a bicycle, a rower, whatever we're doing, you have to understand that the body's number one priority is to not die of a heat stroke. Mm. So when you're exercising, it's always diverting blood to the muscles for oxygen and water to the skin for sweating. When you throw food in your gut, you need both blood and water to digest. So you're putting the body under an executive decision. Do I need to digest this food and convert it to energy or do I avoid a heat stroke? It's always, always, always going to go to avoid a heat stroke. So digestion takes a back seat. This is why we end up with a lot of digestive issues, bloating, gas, diarrhea, because the system gets backed up, especially when the intensity is high, the temperature is high. Those two things are going to require the body to focus on what we call thermal regulation, getting the internal heat out to the skin. Well, think about our sport. We're putting a helmet on us. We're covering our ability to sweat with gear. You just compounded the problem. And then... Water doesn't like to evaporate in a moist environment. So 
not only does the sweat have to go through your skin, through your gear, it then is trying to evaporate in a moist environment and water will not evaporate in a moist environment. Humidity is moisture in the air. So it drives your core body temperature up even more. What did we just say 10 seconds ago? It's always going to focus on not dying of a heat stroke, but yeah. it's trying to push through gear and push through humidity and put out a high level of effort, high intensity. And we wonder why digestion makes us throw up or makes yeah. us have gas or makes us throw up in our helmet or whatever it may be. It's not fun to talk about, but these are the things that frustrate people. They're like, well, Rob and Ben said I need to eat. And then I ate and then I threw up what went wrong because nobody teaches them about the inverse relationship between intensity and the complexity of food. If you think about a marathoner that's, you know, running at 15 to 18 miles an hour, you know, right now the world record for the marathon is just, just a shy over two hours. I mean, that's a sub five minute pace. Yeah. It's incredible, but they can't do it without calories. So my point is you don't see them eating steaks and, and, um, and, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. They're eating gels, blocks, and energy drinks because the body can convert it very, very quickly to energy. Yeah. We got to think about it the same way. Their heart rate is not redlining, but it's pretty close. Anybody that's listening to our podcast, this is another subject we could talk about for days. You are not out there racing at anaerobic threshold. I got news for you. We said this in the last podcast. If you could race at your true anaerobic threshold, then Usain Bolt would win the marathon in about an hour. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you look it up, if you want to, if you want to become a, 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 you know, a Google wizard, if you understand the accumulation of lactic acid and the Krebs cycle and all the metabolic byproducts, you're not racing at anaerobic threshold because the, the duration that you can hold that for is anywhere between 30 and maybe 90 seconds, 80 seconds. But yeah. yet you're out there racing for eight to 10 minutes, <laughs> you know, or 30 minutes, as you said earlier, for the, the national guys. Yeah. They're not racing at anaerobic threshold. No, that's right. Physiologically not possible. And I'll argue that all day long. I hear it all the time, especially when the TV wants to show heart rate. Oh, he's racing at anaerobic threshold. No, he's not. Yeah. He's not at max heart rate either. <laughs> it's not a sustainable effort. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. You can't get enough oxygen in and you can't get the lactic acid out fast enough. Again, if it was possible, Usain Bolt would hold the world record for the 100 meters and the marathon. Yeah. It's not possible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it comes back to like what we were talking about before off there about the, the intervals for the anaerobic stuff when yes. you're trying to hit that heart rate and quite often people fall short because they don't push into that, that anaerobic zone. Well, it's just like Casey was saying, if you know what your accurate aerobic zone is, that bike ride becomes a glass ceiling. You don't let yourself go above a number. When we're trying to work on somebody's sprint speed, their lactate tolerance or anaerobic threshold, you need to know what the heart rate zone is for that form of training. Mm. The motorcycle will always have a higher heart rate than the rower. The rower will always have a higher heart rate than running. Running will always be higher than cycling. So we do max heart rate assessments in every form of training off the motorcycle so that the heart rate zones are specific to the rower, the bicycle, and we do the same thing on the motorcycle. We do a max heart rate assessment on the motorcycle so that when you're evaluating, hey, what intensity am I racing on the weekend? As you download that data, what filter are you running it through? 
I'll go on public record as saying, I think VO2 max assessments are a waste of time because you're in an environment where the air condition, they're controlling humidity, they're controlling all the environment. That's not what we race in. Yeah. Put a heart rate monitor on and get geared up and go figure out what your max heart rate is on the motorcycle. Then go race over the weekend and download it and see what where's your average and max heart rate. But say that it's in the high end of zone three. Great. Go over to the rower. You know what your max heart rate is on the rower. You know what your five zones are. You go above zone three to work lactate tolerance and anaerobic threshold specific to the rower to build the energy system to go faster on the motorcycle. If you've got five energy systems, you need to know what it is for the bicycle, the rower, the running, and everything else. Mm. But I can improve an energy system in a cross-training environment as long as I have accurate heart rate data for that modality, the rower, the bicycle, running, et cetera. Yeah. Very important. Yeah, for sure. I guess one little thing I thought might be worth mentioning for Casey's question too, like if he's obviously, um, you can give me your thoughts on this, but if I was programming someone's, if they were in a phase where they were building more aerobic base, then they'd most probably be doing a bit more strength work too in that pre-season phase perhaps. So those cycle rides, the intensity is low. um, So they're not really working on building that muscular endurance or climbing through the hills they're building strength in their strength workouts so if he's if he's balancing that out with some other strength work then he he should be fine you're exactly right think about it in the form of residual fatigue you know casey's original question is do i need to worry about the load or worry about heart rate worry about heart rate yeah when you're looking at residual fatigue in preseason, the fatigue comes from focusing on maximizing strength in the gym but we're still evaluating the overall fatigue on the body. So what I do with my clients is I look at the total number of hours per week on and off the motorcycle, and I break it down based on what percentage is aerobic and anaerobic. And then I look at biofeedback indicators to see if they're truly absorbing the, the workload. Yeah. If they're not absorbing the workload, we look at food quality and quantity, and we look at sleep quality and quantity it goes back to that trying to strike a balance. If you take it one step further, preseason should always be maximum strength and aerobic function. So the bike rides, it doesn't matter if you're riding your bike at 12K miles an hour. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Your strength work is where you're building your power. You're trying to burn fat and you're just trying to build an aerobic engine. That requires a glass ceiling. Yeah. Then when we move from preseason to pre-competitive, you start dropping in a little bit of speed work. Well, that's where you back off on the strength work because it's still about looking at the overall stress on the body. What you give up in the gym, you move it over to intervals on and off the motorcycle. Then when we get into competitive mode phase one, we're doing we're still doing strength training, keeps tendons and ligaments strong, reduces risk of injury, but you're not doing a lot of load bearing that doesn't create a lot of residual fatigue. The fatigue is coming from incrementally more volume of interval training, heart rate ladders, negative splits, but still evaluating the fatigue level on the body. Sometimes this week you might be good at doing 10 intervals. Next week you probably wouldn't be good at more than six just because you're looking at the fatigue coming into that workout. And your point's exactly right, Ben. It, there's some assumptions based on your training block that you're in. Now, you and I talked about this before we started tonight's podcast. Don't be afraid to kind of slide back a block 
if you're finding somebody's mentally cracking under some high intensity training, slide it back. Mm. You know, and I don't want to talk in circles here. Essentially, if we're changing the duration of the intensity, go ahead and, and, and make some adjustments on your rest cycle. That's not a bad thing. Because if you're think about it this way, and, and this gets into something that's very technical, but in my opinion, very simple. If on race weekend, we're identifying that you don't have that opening lap sprint speed, it's more important to go, if you have to take a quote unquote step back, meaning you give yourself a little bit more rest. So you start every interval a little fresher to get more out of it. That is way more beneficial than saying, oh, in competitive mode, I should be at this work rest ratio. I should be doing this volume of, screw all that. Yeah. Go back and if you, when we're dealing with, and and this is something that I think it's important for the listeners to understand. If I'm trying to build lactate tolerance and overall power, I have to start that interval very, very fresh. If I don't start the interval fresh, what happens is I'm not going to be able to get to that higher level of output. And because of that, that energy system never becomes stronger. It never becomes a strength. And we always race to our weakest link, no pun intended. And that's what I want people to understand. You and I talk about it all the time. Don't take a textbook theory and say, yep, that's all the rules and regulations and stay in that box. It won't work. It absolutely, it's a good starting point, but it doesn't work. Yeah. And I guess that's the art of being a coach too, isn't it? That's what we get paid to do. (laughs) Well, and that's why I think it's so important that the athletes that are listening to, or the individuals, athletes, whatever people want to describe themselves as, is please look at the track record and the credentials of the coaches that you're hiring. If a coach has a history of hurting athletes, burning athletes out, why would you want to go down that path? Mm-hmm. So, yes, I could push an athlete 1% or 2% more, but I know that the long-term ramifications is I'm going to shorten their career by two or three years. I would rather you, and that's where I always feel it's my responsibility. Yes, I have lots of years. I'm going to show my age every time I'm on the show with you. You know, I've been doing this for 35 plus years. I'm not expecting you to know everything that I know based on school and experience and all that, but you still have to be willing to learn. You have to be willing to empower yourself with knowledge. Yeah. If you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, you shouldn't be doing it you should feel comfortable to be able to challenge your coach to say, why am I doing this? And the coach should be able to explain it to you. And my, I say this as humbly as I can. If I don't put this in a format that you understand it, you're never going to understand it. That's why we have podcasts. That's why we have videos. That's why we have articles. I understand that people, some people learn by seeing, some learn by hearing, some learn by doing some, it's a matrix of them all, but and t- it doesn't matter what it is until I explain it in a way that you get it, you're not going to get it. But just to tell somebody to do it because I said, so I call it the mushroom syndrome. Yeah. You want to keep everybody in the dark and cover them in bullshit. Let's tell them the truth, empower them with knowledge, let them understand it's okay to take a rest day, even though your schedule says you're supposed to do intervals. Now, sure. There's some young listeners that are like, Oh, cool. There's an easy way out. Those aren't champions. No, that's right. Those aren't champions. Yeah. That's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, we better, we'll get on to our next question, hey? Absolutely. We're, we're racking up some minutes here, so. 
No worries. I'm all yours. I'm just glad that the listeners have questions. I mean, I appreciate you giving me a chance to give the whole background because I don't want Casey or Trent to go, well, he only answered half the question because they're trying to finish. If we only get through three questions and they feel like we really got into it, that's when I know we're doing a good job. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you've given them plenty to work with there for sure. Perfect. For sure. I'm sure we won't have any complaints. <laughs> well, if Trent or any of the listeners or Casey has more questions, yeah, that's what I love about you is send the questions in and we'll, we'll do a deep dive on it because we want your listeners to be empowered. And the funny part is I give the same information to five people and get five different results because one out of the five is going to really sink their teeth into it. Mm. And, you know, I don't say it, I don't say it arrogantly because I, I just guide the efforts, but you know, we have over 230 amateur national championships. We have four number one AMA plates. Um, we've got an off-road championship. If that matters to you, then listen. If it doesn't matter, don't listen. Buy yeah, into some right. ideology or something. And it's not about me. I don't want that to come across the wrong way, but I have nothing to hide. I want people to know the truth. I want them to be healthy. I want them to be fast. And I want them to do it for years and years and years. That's why I love your podcast. That's why I love being a part of it. So thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say the same thing. That's why I love the podcast too. Like we're getting quite a few downloads now. It's just, it's such an awesome thing that I wish, I guess I wish I had when I was coming through the ranks is something like this. And that, that's the big, I guess the driving force between me wanting to, uh, behind me wanting to do this podcast is being able to provide that. Like you say, it's free. People to listen to this, this information from you, if they actually apply it, I'll get some pretty good results. Well, I promise you, you'll get good results with it. Not because I have the perfect formula, but I've worked out all the kinks and I know what works. And like you said, I remember being in the library and just scouring for books and there was nothing. There weren't mm. extensive books on nutrition and there wasn't extensive books on physiology and kinesiology. But I will say this, the thing that I find so frustrating and, and I was at Loretta's one year and a gentleman came up to me and, and I'm, when you get to Loretta's, by the time you get to the middle of the week, it's either utopia or totally pissed off. Yeah. You know what I mean? You've got parents that spend eight, ten thousand $10,000 on a bike and Johnny goes out there and rides like a complete moron. And so what happens is this guy, or what happened was this guy came over and he goes, I don't understand it. He goes, I hired a nutritionist. I hired a strength coach. I hired a massage therapist. I hired a sports psychologist. I hired a mechanic and my rider is horrible. Well, the problem is, is the nutritionist doesn't understand moto. The guy in the gym doesn't understand moto. The sports psychologist doesn't understand moto. Nobody understands moto unless you're entrenched in moto. Yeah, for sure. The principles of nutrition and physiology doesn't change from a triathlete to a runner, to a mountain biker, to a wakeboarder, to a motocross, but the application and the adjustments do. We just talked extensively about the inverse relationship between food complexity and intensity. Well, the rule still applies to wakeboarding and mountain biking, but wakeboarders don't wear enough gear to cover 98% of their body, almost what? 95% of their body. Yeah. So how is a, how is a nutritionist going to figure that out when she doesn't understand the exothermic process of race gear against humidity on a motorcycle that's extremely hot? You see how complex that gets quickly? Yeah, for sure. And that's where we've, we've really tried to stay focused on the moto market where it's like, it is a different beast for somebody that's riding off road two, three, four, five hours. Explain that to a nutritionalist. 
where mm-hmm. he or she's going to get their calculator out and start doing math and tell you to consume X amount of calories. It's, they're not looking at intensity. Are you burning more sugar or more fat? They don't look at your sweat rate. Should you take in more sodium and, and more potassium or less? <laughs> they don't know. They, they're not factoring in all of that. And that's why I hope people understand some of the things that we discuss is going to go completely contrary to what your nutritionalist said, what your strength and conditioning coach said. Well, there's a reason why it's called moto. It's not called mainstream fitness. Yeah. And I, the listeners really focus on that because we want them to enjoy pushing and pulling a dirt bike around, whether it's for 30 minutes or three hours. But that's why I'm glad there's people like yourself out there that are out there telling the athletes the truth. And those are the guys and girls that are just going to go, straight to the front. And that's why I love, like you said, that's why we do what we do. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yep. We'll, um, Mike, we'll get through, we're nearly up to an hour. We might get through this next question. And then I've, I've actually got a couple of questions I thought I'd tack on the end so we can get to know coach Rob a little bit better too. Absolutely. So. <laughs> oh, we're going to put me on the spot. Here we go. <laughs> um, but the, the next one's from Darren. It, it was, it's um, Darren, he is a member of our local club. He asked me this the other day and it's a question that I often get asked quite often by parents is should, should kids be training in the gym? And if so, what should they be focusing on? It's so a great terms, I'm, I'm, I guess he's probably thought like maybe perhaps sort of 17, 18 or younger, I guess. Yeah. We always break the kids down into whether or not they've hit puberty or not. Yeah. If they've hit puberty, we know their growth plates are pretty solid. They can handle a little bit more load-bearing exercises. But the difficult part about moto is we have to recognize that these young kids are pushing and pulling a bike that weighs, um, how many kilos is a typical 85? Oh, yeah, I think they're around 60, 60, 70 okay. maybe. Yeah. So if you think about a young prepubescent child pushing around 80 pounds at race speed, on paper, I would say no. You definitely don't want to have at young athletes before puberty doing load-bearing exercises. And then we turn right around and put them on a rip-roaring 85 yeah. and go, hey, why are they keep getting hurt? So I do have my young athletes. Like, for example, I have the privilege of working with Logan Bess. He, he's on the Yamaha program here in the States. Um, he is on load-bearing exercise, but it's all body weight exercise. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, you'd ask, what should they focus on? They should always focus on balance. They should be lifting. And in fact, all of your listeners, they should be lifting weights on one leg at a time whenever possible. They need to be incorporating movement and instability, whether it's on a BOSU ball, a folded beach towel, uh, doing it on one leg, doing it on one leg with their eyes closed. Um, balance is a big issue with kids. I think that they've got to be able to move their body weight around Um, i.e. box hops up onto the box. Do not jump back down because that's the greatest amount of load. One-legged step ups and step downs. Um, Lots of push-ups, lots of pull-ups. I don't have a problem, you know, when you get into medicine ball work because you're still focusing on balance. I don't like straight bar work, and I definitely don't like stationary machinery. Um, I don't like that for anybody, whether it's general Mm -hmm. fitness trying to lose, you know, 30 kilos or an elite racer. The machine does all the stability work for you. And the quickest illustration for anybody who's listening is stand on one leg, focus on something across the room, 
Now close your eyes and watch how fast you start to lean over. That is what we call proprioceptive balance. Every time you hit the face of a jump, that proprioceptive balance has to be engaged, but we don't ever train it. That's why you see the bike going sideways off the jump. That's why we see other challenges. We break the human body into three dimensions, the front and the back, top and bottom, left and right. So I don't want you going to the gym and just sitting there doing bicep curls. That's a waste of time because it's a one muscle movement and you don't ride a motorcycle in a one muscle movement. Always needs to have dynamic movement with it. But with that being said, children should do jump ropes. They should do uh, mountain climbers. They should be doing lots of push-ups and pull-ups. They should do step-ups. They should swim a tremendous amount. Swimming will blow up the cardiovascular improvement, but it has zero impact on the body, which is awesome. I don't agree with running for young kids. I don't even agree with running for most moto because your ankles, your knees, and your hips are already taken abuse. Now, if you, if you ran running in middle school and high school, and now you've gotten into moto and your body's already acclimated, sure, keep doing it. But if you're not if you didn't grow up in running shoes, I would not encourage running. Your hips, your lower back, your knees, your ankles already take enough abuse. Do something a little more gentle. Row, road bike, mountain bike, concept two rower, skier. My favorite is swimming. I use swimming with Dungy more than anything else that we did. Because we could get more hours on the motorcycle and still build cardiovascular fitness with less residual fatigue. Yeah, yeah, we for would, sure. We would use swimming post race weekend as part of an active recovery because of the contrast therapy. There's just a multitude of benefits. Yeah. And if you think about swimming, you're required to hold your breath every 15 seconds. You don't go down the road, riding your bicycle, holding your breath. You don't ride your, but it will, it'll prove, it'll improve what we call hypoxic breathing, being able to go anaerobic. Not that that's always the focus, but it's a fringe benefit. I believe that's what kids need to do. Yeah. One of the things that we did, um, many of you guys know who Jordan Bailey is. And one of the things that we did with Jordan Bailey is we literally would go to a playground and we'd play freeze tag. Now, you got to remember, I started with Jordan when he was on 85s, actually just coming into 85. So he was very young, very, very petite, um, hadn't hit puberty. Go to the playground and play freeze tag. Because what you're doing at that point, you say, well, Rob, you said don't run. Well, think about a playground. It's in dirt. The impact on the body is relatively benign, but they're giggling and screaming and laughing. But what are we working on? We're working on that balance that we were just talking about. They're climbing up on the bars. They're jumping up, trying to run from you. They're working legs, core, cardio, upper body. They don't look at it as fitness. They just look at it as they're running from Coach Rob. Parents can do this. Go to the playground and play freeze tag with your kids. Go play soccer with your kids. And you're like, Rob, you just said don't run. They're running in a grass field. They're running for short periods of time. I'm talking about the type of running where you go run four or five kilos, or excuse me, kilometers, and the child's out there running for 30 or 40 minutes. No, that's way, way, way too much impact. So yes, we need to have some load-bearing exercises, but it needs to be kind of more, no, nothing more than what they're doing. And then I think, you know, you can add in some medicine balls to make things a little bit more difficult. But it is, it is important because these kids on 80, 65 is not so much, but 85 is for sure because they're little fire-breathing dragons. You know, they're fast. Absolutely. It almost seems crazy to me that, like, like you say, they are fast. They've got a hell of a lot of power. They're sending themselves around a track. If they're not 
put in a bit of time into working on some basic strength. And like you say, it, there's so much you can learn in inside a gym without even having to touch a barbell. Like I think people have this misconception that when they go to the gym, they're going to be deadlifting 200 kilos <laughs> straight away or something like that. But there's a long there's a long process you got to follow before you even look at doing that stuff. And like you say, just learning some basic body weight movements and things for kids. Because like, as as you mentioned, like they've got as a as a rule, kids are really aerobically active anyway. Like they are probably as active as we should be because they they walk everywhere, they run everywhere, they play. So yep. they can just gain a lot out of body weight movements in itself and a bit of body awareness, I suppose. Do you guys still have PE in your schools over there? Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. See, they've actually taken it out of the schools here. We don't have PE really? in school anymore. Right. If you think about it, these kids are in class all day long, and when they get outside, all they want to do is scream and holler and go crazy because that's what we used to do, or I'm twice your age. But, you know, that's what we used to do is we got recess and we got PE and all that other. So yeah. you get kids outside in the sunlight and you let them scream and you run and you let them break a sweat, then they come in and they want to study. Mm. But when you don't let these kids out and then – in the context of your podcast, you take these young children and then you want to take them to the track where they've been sitting inside. They're kind of dormant. They're almost lethargic. They have no vitamin D from the sun. They haven't broken a sweat yet. They've kind of been dummied down to where they're almost lethargic. And then we go to the racetrack and like, come on, let's go, let's go. Well, there's not, you know, energy creates energy. That's just reality. Yeah. Speaking of minis, just real quick um, for any of the mini parents that are on the podcast with us, please do us all a favor. And before you go buy a modded motor and stiffer suspension, get to a point where your rider can ride a stock bike and ride the wheels off of it. Yeah. I see so many injuries on super minis and in the, in the 85 class, because in, when the rider's not riding well, the moto dad thinks that the answer is stiffer suspension and a faster motor. And that's going to only injure your athlete quicker. You know, I always say it this way. When I see an 85 rider that's coming out of the corner super hard and he's literally waiting on the bike, that's when it's time to go ahead and bump it up. When you see a rider that starts to over jump things and he's starting to flat land and he's G'ing out the stock suspension and you've got it all dialed with compression and rebound, that's the time to put stiffer springs. Maybe I'm not going to say an A kit because those are expensive, but you know what I'm saying? I see these kids, they roll in. I can't even push their front forks down. The bike's so stiff. And I watch the child come out of a corner and there's so much power, you know, little Johnny's hanging on the back, going off the back of the fender and you know, the poor kids just, and then he ends up whiskey throttling something because he hits it going way too fast. Stop. You're destroying your children. Stop. Yeah. Let the child. Now you and I've talked about this off the record. I always train a 65 rider to be ready for an 85. I train an 85 rider for a 125. I train a 125 for a 250, a 250 for a factory bike because that's where they're going. But you don't just throw care to the wind and say, well, because he's going to ride an 85, like you say, he's going to start deadlifting 200 kilos. No. We look at his body composition. You do that with body measurements. You do a little bit of assessments. How many jump ropes can he do? How many pull-ups can he do? How many push-ups can he do? You know, just some fundamental assessments. And once he hits the milestones of achievement, sure, go ahead and layer in a little bit more. But like you say, this idea of going to the gym and just pouring it on, it, you and I have talked about this as well. It's wrong because the trainers want themselves to look good instead of thinking about what's right for the individual. 
Yeah. And that's what I want the listener to pay attention to is ask, why are we doing it? <laughs> that's probably Absolutely. the most important thing. Ask why you're doing it. Absolutely. Always. Well, I think it's even like, not just from, I guess the, the moto community, but just general public in, in general have quite often have a misconception with the gym for that reason mm-hmm. that they've had a bad experience or something along the line that just gets, that's their story that they project project down the line and um like as you and i know if you find a good gym and a good coach like it's definitely not the way it has to be absolutely boy think about it um i don't know how it is in australia but i know here in the states when a kid screws up on the football field they punish them by making them run so now Mm. exercise perceived as punishment yeah and then when you do exercise it's got to be so difficult that it's not sustainable and you see these kids and even these adults nowadays, they're walking around with physio tape and knee braces and all kinds of, look, if you have to have your knee braced, there's an identified weakness in that quadricep group or the hamstring group that's creating an unstable knee. Absolutely. Yeah. If, if you got to have physio tape to keep a muscle to track properly, that's a, that's a muscular and a flexibility imbalance. Don't tape it fix it. Yeah. If I ever had an athlete that presented themselves to me and they showed up to a workout and they have physio tape on, I have failed them as an individual Mm. because that's a sign of overtraining. Now, granted you have to deal a very fine line balance on keeping the psychological confidence of the athlete up, making sure that they're, you know, staying in the game. Don't feel like they're getting left behind. But I look at it this way. Remember what I said a half hour ago? If I always err on the side of caution by 1% or 2%, they'll never be in physio tape. They'll never be in a knee brace. They'll never have some form of itis, tendonitis of that, tendonitis of this, tendonitis of that. Nobody should ever have an itis. An itis is an inflammation from some imbalance and or overuse. Yeah. So please don't get desensitized to pain. If it hurts every time you raise your arm up and it flares up, address that flare up. That's not natural. You should be able to move without pain. Don't worry about going fast. You need to move without pain. When you can move without pain, sure, we'll start looking at getting faster and being able to go fast for a long period of time. Don't dismiss an itis. Don't dismiss some sharp pains. That's unhealthy. And health and wellness has to be the foundation before performance. Yeah. So if it gets me fired, it gets me fired. But it's a, it's a moral obligation to humanity that it's not about Coach Rob saying, hey, look at how good of a trainer I am. I made you so sore you can't brush your teeth. What does that have to do with anything? Yeah, exactly. You're hiring me to help you achieve your goals, but I'm breaking you down so I look good. But you're not achieving your goals. And a 10-year career is cut down to two because – I baked you for two years. I mean, we don't need to name drop any names, but how many guys careers have been cut short over the last 20 years? Mm. You could look at a green bike. You could look at an orange bike. You could look at almost every color of bike out there and come up with a name. It didn't have to be that way. And that that's where, and I'll go on public record to saying this, this is why I don't even want to call them performance coaches. They tended to call themselves trainers in the early 2000s they got a bad rap and they deserved it because they earned it by ruining athletes careers. Yeah. And that's why I want to empower the, the, anybody who's listening to your podcast, 
if your coach doesn't have the credentials and doesn't have the track record of success and can't answer the why, find another coach. Yeah. I live, I live in America. I can't do what you do. But that's what makes you invaluable because you know what it's like to win and you'll get them there, but you're going to get them there in the right way, not just a way that they can do it for six months or a year, but they can do it for six years or maybe 10. Yeah. Not always the quickest, but it's the right way to do it. And I'm not trying to sell your services. I'm saying, listeners, pay attention to what you're doing and ask why. It's got to be simple. It's got to be sustainable. I, I refer to it as the KISS program. Everybody hears KISS and they go, oh, keep it simple, stupid. That's my point. Yeah. Immediately, people want to put a negative name call. My KISS formula is keep it simple and sustainable. Yeah, well, I like that. good. Well, it doesn't make me the most popular, but I, I will say I sleep very good at night because I know that I've never jeopardized somebody's health at the expense of performance and vice versa. And I know you feel the same way. Otherwise, we wouldn't be on the podcast together. So exactly, that's not, that's not a soapbox. It's more of I want the listeners to have that aha moment to go, wait a second. I don't need to walk around with all this aches and pains and creams and tapes and braces. Hell no. Get out of that stuff get to where you can get out of bed and move and it doesn't hurt. Be able to reach down and tie your shoes and not feel like you got a sharp pain in the small of your back and stop, stop doing what you're doing. It's crazy. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah, and I guess what, just some of the, a lot of that stuff is, but well, folk comes back to basics too. A lot of that stuff, doesn't it? Focusing on those basic things like your sleep, your food, your mobility, stretching, not overtraining. Yeah. Like when you nail those basics and those things start to fall in line pretty easily. It does, but it's not sexy. It's not sizzling. It's not, you know, controversial. So, you know, all it takes is somebody taking a concept like intermittent fasting, spinning it, embellishing it, polishing it. And, you know, all of a sudden you've got a new controversy and you've got a new quote unquote method. There's nothing new to that. I've been in triathlon since 1987. Yeah. I've used intermittent fasting this entire time. Yeah, But now it's selling books, it's creating meal plans, it's selling energy bars, it's selling whatever else is under the sun. And I'm like, whatever, you know, it's, it's nothing new. It's gotten taken out of context. And unfortunately, it's starting to hurt people. We're having people report to our offices that are doing intermittent fasting and they're doing keto and their hair is falling out and they've got all kinds of blood disorders and they're not sleeping through the night. Hey, I don't own keto. I don't own the concept of ketosis, but I'm telling you, People that were on that methodology are now presenting themselves with physiological issues. I didn't pay them to walk in my office, but they tried it. It burnt them. And now I got to try to fix it. And that's what breaks my heart because they were sold by some expert that living in a world of ketosis is perfect. And it's so utopic and all, Hey, stand at my front door and watch the ones that have come in from CrossFit come in from this new you know, everything's got to be keto to super setting to super slow. As we said in the last show, we see the attrition happening all the time. P90X, insanity. I mean, it's the same rhetorical conversation. You yeah. can't take something and blow it out of proportion. It never works. Yeah, it's a, there's a big one in Australia at the moment. It's F45. So it's 45 minutes of hit training um, oh. and at 40 on, 20 off. For 45 minutes. Well, they vary it. Vary it. Sure. That's sure. what they call their programming. <laughs> but, um, yeah. 
it's yeah they, they do these challenges and it's five six days a week of 45 minutes of hit training every day and they have like i think their female clients are having them on like 1300 calories or something with with five or six days of hit training and men's like 18 1900 calories it's yeah it's crazy it's and, and I, I don't know how they get away with it like yeah you know, if, if, if you, uh, if you put that in uh, your family, you, that would be considered child abuse. And it's uh, exactly, yeah. you know, for somebody that's, that's doing that, whatever you called it, P45 or whatever the heck it's called. Think about it this way. If you're an elite marathoner, are you going to the track and running 12, 18, 20 quarter mile intervals or four, excuse me, 400 meter intervals? Every single day, six days a week, you're going to go to the track and all you're going to do is for 45 minutes, you're going to run 400 meter repeats or 800 meter repeats or 1200 meter repeats or 1600s, whatever you want to do. No, there's not an elite runner, elite athlete that goes out and trains that hard every single day. An elite runner trains long one day a week. They train speed work one to two days a week. The rest of it's all maintenance. Well, let's do the math. There's seven days in a week. Some of those athletes are doing four two-a-days. So mm. let's just say in seven days, that typical athlete is doing 10 workouts a week. That's one day of rest, 10 workouts spread out over six days. They are not going 45 minutes of 16,400 meters Every single day of the week, five days a week, excuse me, six days a week, four weeks a month for 12 months. Yeah. An elite runner goes out and he runs, he or she runs one day fast. They do one day in the hills to work strength. They do one day long and then they intersperse heart rate ladders, fart licks, things like that. Yeah. So if you look at somebody who's running the marathon and is running a 203 marathon and you take them and you put them, What? i sorry, what's it called? Something 45? F, F45. Okay. So if you took the F45 model and put it on an elite runner, they would not last more than a month. Mm. But yet we go and take soccer mom Susie and we take <laughs> her to F45 and we put her on 1,300 calories and we train her six days a week for 40 she, seconds on. She's probably only getting five hours sleep a night. Exactly. Trying to keep a family afloat. Yeah. It's an absolute <laughs> prescription for destruction. Yeah. But yet it sells gym memberships. It's new. It's a fad. And all it yeah. takes is a couple pretty women in small clothing and a couple really hyper fit guys. And that sells it. You can be this guy or girl. Yeah. It's pathetic. It's crazy. Yeah. Yep. Hopefully people are starting to come around. <laughs> well, you know, the sad part about it is they come around after they get burnt. Well, that's then, right. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, quite often it's got to come to that, doesn't it? Yeah. And, the, and that's what breaks my heart because I've yeah. got an individual right now who is a professional cyclist for, I guess, seven years. And his coach was a low caloric coach and a high intensity coach. And his blood work is so messed up. His doctors literally told him there's nothing that they can help him with. Really? Yeah, it's kind of like you taking your your Serco and putting 500 hours on it and nobody's got any parts to replace it. Mm. It's That's the analogy I want people to understand. You baked yeah. it, you pushed it, you baked it, 
but unfortunately the system is so messed up. It's literally unfixable. Mm. And he comes to me and goes, what do you do? And I go, dude, you just got to sleep and eat. There's nothing else you can do, but try to bury yourself out of a hole. Mm. But yet the cycling coach is still, he's still coaching athletes, ruining another athlete after another. And we see it at the collegiate level, particularly in swimming, just burn them up, use them up, burn them up, use them up, burn them. Cause there's always another thousand kids coming in the system. Yeah, absolutely. I think these coaches should be held accountable to the attrition rate. They should be accountable to the blood disorders. They should be accountable mm-hmm. to the injuries. They should be account, but they're not. Yeah. I'm accountable to all my athletes. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, if I, if an athlete has to end his career, I take that personal because I was guiding his efforts, her efforts. And to actually cut that career short, I, I, I'd be gutted. And um, I think these coaches need to be held accountable for it. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, and it is, it's amazing they're not really. Like, it's amazing that it doesn't, word doesn't come back that, it that that's the case. Well, here's the scary part is you have a lot of parents with some demented mindsets. I had a lady that uh, her daughter was in uh, a collegiate swimmer. And she literally was sitting in the bathroom in a fetal position at the pool crying because she's so hungry. She's so burnt out. She's mentally and physically spent. She put on 17 pounds of pure body fat based on a DEXA scan in one month. And yet she's swimming 20,000, 30,000, 60,000 meters a week. And the coach is like, you got to swim more. You're not swimming enough. And the, when I brought it to the mom's attention, let's look at the volume of training at the intensity she's doing it and looking at the food she's eating. The mom's like, oh, we're good. We're going to move on now. Thank you. So the mom sees what the daughter's doing and sees the ramifications of her behavior, but the mom's not willing to stop it because her daughter's on a scholarship for swimming. Mm. The mom should be spanked. That's that's horrible. Yeah, absolutely. Because as I started, as I started to narrow it down, she didn't want to. She didn't want to come to grips with what we were rec- what we were exposing. Yeah. You can't run on thirteen hundred calories and go forty five minutes six days a week and expect the system to sustain itself. God no, no. Put your put your motorcycle in second gear, and just ride it for forty five minutes and see how long it lasts. Wide open. Yeah. Oh no no. Go 40 seconds on, 20 seconds idle, 40 seconds on, but only second gear. Yeah. And do that for 45 minutes and just do it for one week and then tell me, put the motor back on a dyno and tell me how solid it's running. I know it sounds like a bad analogy to put it to a motor, but you would never do that to a motor, but we think we can do it to the human body. Mm, you're on. Caloric, calorically restrict it and then run it in second gear wide open. Really? <laughs> <laughs> This doesn't make sense. It doesn't, no. But again, that's why we're doing these podcasts, education. Right. So the, the more people we can, I guess, empower with that knowledge and they can start to make better decisions, right? That's exactly it. And that's why, again, I want to thank everybody for listening to the podcast because we hope that we're changing perspectives one person at a time and then they'll talk to their friends. And, you know, it. I know it seems very idealistic, but I have to trust it. It's the it's only way I can get through a day. Absolutely. Yeah, so, great question. I'll um, I'll get through a couple of these quick ones. Just some rapid fire ones. I thought okay. so we can get to know Coach Rob a bit better. 
right. These are, this first one I thought of after our last podcast, but the other ones are just ones that I would give to when, if I just have a, someone I'm interviewing on the podcast, I quite often hit them up with a few rapid fire questions at the end. All right. All right, here we go. <laughs> so this, like, this came to me after that last our podcast on nutrition. So say, Coach Rob, you've rekindled your motocross career and you're going to go and race the, the Nationals this weekend. Yeah. What, what are you having? What's a day on your plate look like? What are you having for breakfast? What are you packing in your cooler to take for, for snacks and how are you refueling after the race? Absolutely. Um, first thing I do is as soon as I wake up, I always try to do eight to 10 ounces of ice cold water with fresh squeezed lemon. I do that every morning. Um, as soon as I get up I'm, and you'll laugh at me, if you look at my calendar, it literally says foam rolling and hydrate. It's literally on my calendar every day. Yeah. Um, I try not, to, I don't wake up to an alarm every day. I'm very fortunate with that. So when I go to bed, I sleep until I wake up. Usually it's about 7am our time. So by 7 to 7.30, I have 8 to 10 ounces of water with fresh squeezed lemon. I foam roll very, very gently just to kind of see if I find any nooks, you know, any problems. I immediately go to breakfast. Uh, breakfast for me every day is four eggs. I do uh, a little bit of Greek yogurt, uh, the little cups of yogurt. I have fresh granola that I put in that and I stir that up. I always like to have like tangerines or oranges. I just like the citrus. And then I'll do like a banana and that'll be kind of breakfast. So that way I'm getting, um, if I have some fresh avocados, I'll do an avocado with some extra virgin olive oil, but avocados are not always easy to get where they're edible. So that's yeah. always a hit or miss there. But the others are pretty constant every day. Um, at, at, that's usually at seven at nine, I'll usually do a banana with some almond butter. And then that usually uh, that'll segue me over to lunch. Lunch is usually leftovers from the night before. So uh, if we go back yesterday, what I did was, uh, Michaela does it for me. We do angel hair pasta with grilled chicken and every type of vegetable that she can get a hold of. Broccoli, green peppers, yellow peppers, mushrooms, uh, asparagus, anything that she can get fresh. She usually makes more than enough, so I have it for lunch the next day. So like today was the angel hair pasta with the chicken and the vegetables. I'll throughout the day. I'm always, um, I've always got these guys sitting on my desk and, you know, I've always got them lined up beside me. So I know how many I've gotten through during the day. Um, I try to make sure I hit my hydration religiously. Yeah. If it, if it was race day, I would do the exact same thing. If I'm, if I'm answering your question correctly, I would take what I had for dinner the night before and I'd bring that into the rig. So that, the idea is I want to have my last solid meal two hours before practice starts. So yeah. once I get that breakfast in me, I'd be going to the track. Um, I have my own sports drink. I have my own supplement business. So I have a product called energy fuel. I'd be sipping on that on the way to the track. Cause that keeps me topped off on my glycogen keeps my electrolytes topped off. I would go to the track. I would do 25 to 40 minutes of cardio on the rower. And then what I do is I do five minutes on the rower and then I do 25 push-ups, And that way I get the front of my body and my back of my body engaged. I do that. Um, I would do that geared up. And I'd go from there. I'd go straight to heading over to the, um, to the practice. Once I come off of practice, first thing I do is I hit more energy fuel. As soon as I come in, I mean, as I'm talking to the mechanics, I'm hitting energy fuel. 
Then I would hit that angel hair pasta with the vegetables. I assuming both sessions of practice are over. Usually get a two hour window before qualifying into the main, you know, that afternoon show begins for outdoors. That's where I do the angel hair pasta. At that point, I do what we call GORP, G-O-R-P. What I do is I take, um, I'll get like a, a half a liter sized uh, bucket and I put every raw nut that I can find, macadamians, almonds, cashews, uh, pecans, anything but an, a peanut because a peanut is really high in starch. So I try to avoid those. And then what I do is I take peanut M&Ms and I put them in there. So you get a little bit of the salt sugar thing mix them all up. And what I do is I make those little two ounce baggies. I fill those baggies up and zip them up. So as I'm going through the day, I'm just constantly grazing on protein and sugar all day long. Yeah. As I get ready to go to the starting line, I top off on the energy fuel gate drops. I race come in. I'll usually do something like an energy bar, you know, something that's a little bit, I I like, I know this sounds really fluffy, (laughs) but I like to have, like the, um, I can't remember the name of it, um, but it's an energy bar that has a little bit of chocolate on the outside. I think it's like the zone bar or something. But what I do is I put them in the refrigerator so they're real crisp and cold. I do that in an energy fuel. It gives me about 500 calories. I'd go out for my second moto. As soon as I come in for my second moto, I would have more energy fuel and I would do what I call a recovery smoothie. It's got whey protein, blueberries, raspberries, it's just a berry mix with whey protein in it. I drink that on my way to the restaurant. We leave the track and go straight to the restaurant. No going anywhere else. Um, go to the restaurant. Usually it's a filet, uh, some kind of high quality protein steak with a vegetable medley and some form of uh, bread with butter on it. And then I always do ice cream after dinner. I then would go home, shower, get ready. I do foam rolling. And then what I would do is I would do a recovery smoothie before bed. And that's how I would cube out of the day. And quite honestly, that's pretty much what every day looks like. I'm a firm believer. The body likes consistency. Yeah. And so like, for example, my specialty is half Ironmans. It's a 1.2 mile swim, 56 mile bike and a half marathon run. I eat that way all day, every day. And then I train twice a day. I train at 10 in the morning and I train again at four o'clock in the afternoon. So I know what I'm eating and I can, perf- I can essentially train on it. And if I can train on it, I know I can race on it. So I don't change it too much. Most of my triathlons, if I know I'm starting at seven, I just get up at five, but I'm still staying on my two hour pattern throughout the day. So yeah. that's, that was what I would do. Yeah. Awesome. I like it. Sounds yeah. Delicious. It's a little different. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so la- a few more, just, more around the bike stuff, these ones. Yeah. Quick ones. Two-stroke or four-stroke? I do you... love two-stroke. I yeah. prefer two-stroke all day long. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. And I think the main reason is I grew up, you know, tinkering with my dad in the garage and my two young boys, we did the same thing. And I think that's far more important to me is those types of memories. I remember it like it was yesterday and my dad's no longer with us anymore. But those are memories that far surpass racing. So to me yeah. – Having to have a computer to tune a four-stroke is not my idea of a good time. (laughs) Not to mention, you know, the amount of money it takes to maintain it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm a two-stroke guy. I've got a four-stroke now, but I've, I guess, as a kid, 
four strokes weren't really a thing when I was a kid. So it was, that's what you had was two strokes. So definitely, definitely got a soft spot for the two strokes. Well, and I think it teaches you to be a better rider. You got to be on the pipe. You got to be busy. Mm. You know, four stroke, you can chug and lug it anywhere and get out of trouble almost every time. So yeah, um, I think the 450 is a tad bit of overkill. I mean, I, mm. I've never ridden a 250 that I thought, wow, I think this needs more power. And to yeah. think that these factory two strokes are pushing 60 horsepower, or uh, excuse me, the 250 four strokes are pushing 60 horsepower is pretty, pretty astounding on a 250. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There's, yeah, a, there's not like the pros, like obviously they're riding a 450 to their true potential, but for the most yeah. part, the, the average guy at, the, at a club level, I don't, I don't think there's any need there for a 450. No, none whatsoever. And I don't think anything ever burns as, as sweet smelling as a two stroke any day. So yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a two stroke lover all the way. So what about who's your favorite rider of all time to watch in terms of their riding style? Yeah, definitely Jeremy McGrath. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't think there's anybody, you know, between the poise and the, the, the skill and the raw talent, the work ethic. And he was such a trendsetter. Um, and then if I, if I were to have to put a second uh, person on there, I'd have to go with James Stewart just because he just was so aggressive on a bike and, he did things that were so outside of uh, what was thought achievable and made it work, whether you want to use the Bubba scrub or seat bouncing the wall at Daytona or whatever it is. Um, I'll never forget watching James Stewart on a, a, a Kawasaki 125, you know, just watching him rip the wheels off that thing. And I had the privilege when I was working with Kyle Chisholm, I got to work out at James's place. Alden was working with James at the time on Cowie and I was working with Kyle Chisholm when he was with Sam Manuel and, you know, there's just nothing that beats that smell and that sound. And, you know, to go in his garage and to see those, those championship bikes up there, it's uh, to watch what he could do and the way that he looked at things differently uh, was second to none. Um, I have a lot of respect and reverence for Ricky Carmichael, you know, getting a chance to work with him as much as I do. Um, Mark Barnett had built some new tracks at his facility and uh, it was actually the first week I was with Ryan Dungey and nobody had ridden the supercross track and Ricky and Ryan and I walked out and nobody, there wasn't a knobby that had ridden the track yet. And we're standing on the finish line jump. And if you're standing on the jump, there's three lanes that go out towards the woods. And Ricky said to Ryan, he goes, how would you take that section? And I'm just paraphrasing this, but you know, Dungey's like, you know, I'm going to seat bounce on, you know, tabletop, tabletop, single, triple into the corner. And Ricky looks at me and goes, no. He goes, you come out of the corner and you huck it. And Ryan goes, you can't. That's not possible. So Ricky goes up. He gets on his two-stroke, 250, comes out, opening lap, and just sends it. (laughs) My my point in all of that is Ricky and James have the – and so does Chad Reed, and Mm. so does Kevin Windham. They see the track completely different. Mm. And I realized after being around Ricky frequently enough, that's God-given. You yeah. and I are not going to see the track the way they see it. Yeah. And you could see that with James. I mean, we, I think we would all be remiss if we didn't say he was one of the most creative guys out there. And to watch him just, you know, to watch Ricky change the entire timing of a section, you ask Mark Barnett, you built it, and this was what it was, quote, unquote, supposed to be. And then Ricky goes out and does it completely different. Yeah. And you just realize it's like, okay, 
I don't want to call it a trendsetter, but Ricky and James and Wyndham and that type of rider, they just saw things differently. And, and Chad, you know, they, they do things differently and they make it work and it's so fast and it's so smooth and it, you look at it and go, gosh, why didn't I think of that? So I've always respected that component of those riders. You know, when it comes to hard work and, and integrity, I always love Jeff Stanton. I like Stanton for everything he represents. Um, not a lot of talent, his words, not mine, but a lot of hard work. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm glad to call him a friend. We're on phones and we call him, yeah. we call each other and wish each other, you know, Merry Christmas and stuff. And I consider that an honor because he's a great guy. So, uh, and there's always the good ones. You've got Fro in between there and obviously Dunge is good. And, you know, Villapoto has a standard and a look. They all are good for the reasons, but that would be who I'd go with right off the bat would be Jeremy McGrath. Yeah, that's awesome. I like that. So, the funny part about go ahead, excuse yeah. me. No, go, go. Tell me. The funny part about Jeremy is when I was racing bicycles professionally, I was riding for the KHS factory team, and we went out to California. We did a race at Azusa, California, and there was this local kid that was there by the name of Jeremy McGrath, and he smoked all of us. I mean, I was on a yeah. factory team. He wasn't, and he smoked all of us. And then to see him come out and bring things like being on the gas on the backside, you know, carrying the momentum, just like BMX, you know, and mm. it's interesting because I raced against Jeremy and BMX. And then I also raced against Eli Tomac's dad, John, John rode for factory mongoose on the BMX side before he went to mountain bikes. Yeah, so right. to see the Tomac family and then to see Jeremy and to see the people influence the sport of motocross that we all enjoy. And just, you know, I've had the present, I've had the privilege of, you know, Jeff uh, Emig and I, we, we talk a lot and, you know, it's just interesting to see how those guys change the sport, but yet to see how their roots all started in very similar backgrounds. So, so you look at, look at uh, Big E from Yoshimura, you know, he's responsible for all the Yoshi bikes at Honda. And yet I used to race against him and BMX every weekend. So yeah. it's a very small network of friends, but uh, everybody still has the same love. We love to ride, we love to jump and we love to go fast, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Well, and McGrath didn't start racing dirt bikes till he was like 13 or 14, did he? Is that oh, right? yeah, I think it was even, yeah, I think it was even yeah. later than that. Well, when he was pro, absolutely. Yeah, which is, that's crazy to think, not crazy to think, but it's amazing. Like, he obviously had skill on a bike, on a BMX, and that he's carried that over. But I, I, I tell that story to a lot of the young kids who train with me now, like, who are 14 or 15, like, yeah, he's the best, one of the best riders we've ever seen. He didn't start riding a freaking dirt bike until he was fourteen. So, like, yeah. the poten- the potential's there. Absolutely. Well, and, and I always look at it this way: if you're new to the sport, you're almost like you're fresher than everybody else. Mm. A lot of these, by the time they get to the pro ranks, they're already yeah. over the grind of being in the motorhome every weekend and traveling, and the thought of doing that now on an airplane and all the headaches that go with it. And yeah, they're done. You know, they tap out, they're finished. Well, do you know who Aaron Gwynn is? Yeah, the mountain bike. Yeah, Razor. have you ever seen yeah, him yeah. ride a motorcycle? No, I haven't, but I assume he'd be pretty oh. handy. Oh, <laughs> he shreds on it. Like, he could be national caliber. He's that yeah, good. Right. Yeah. But what people don't realize is he contributes his success on a mountain bike because his route started motocross. Yeah. His ability to read a section very, very quickly, mm. he contributes to motocross. The speed, so, yeah. Yeah, I just think it's cool, you know, these ancillary sports that we love to watch and how many guys their roots are in moto. So, yeah, yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, for sure. 
So it's one fun. more to finish up. What should, what would be your bigger? And I, you've probably given us about a thousand of these already in this podcast. But what's your biggest tip for a, like a eighteen year old amateur that's coming through the ranks and wants to sort of take their ride into the next level? You know, my thing is is you got to get somebody that's educated that can give you the cliff notes on how to get there faster. You know, you think about I'll use the age you gave, eighteen years old, finishing high school maybe has to work part-time or maybe is fortunate mom and dad are going to put him in an opportunity where they give him a couple years to try to make the cut. You're not going to have enough time in a day to learn everything about nutrition, the proper way to strength train, how to break your year up into periodization, how to break up your seat time to, to train effectively, to be able to recover in time so that you don't leave your best performance in training and be flat on race day. Just the five or six variables that we just mentioned that's a full-time job in itself. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, and, and it's difficult because I don't ever consider myself a man friend. I always say this, it doesn't matter if I'm working with a 65 CC rider or, or an AMA pro, I work for you. And my responsibility is for you to be successful. Now I have to earn the trust of every single rider, just like your listeners. Some of them don't know me from Adam. Yeah, I can say I worked with Adam Sanserelio and the Martin brothers and Ryan Dungey and Brock Tickle and Ian Treadle and blah, 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 blah. I can name names. But what really matters is I need to, I need to earn the listener's trust that if they apply some of the things that we talk about, that they'll immediately feel a difference. Mm-hmm. When I go to work with somebody that's 18 years old and is trying to cut their teeth and they've been given a short window of opportunity, it's like we said earlier – uh, and I'm going to name drop here for just a moment. We're we're privileged enough to work with Seth Hamaker right now, and he's got a deal that he's and he's going to finish amateur, and then he's going to go straight into pro ranks, and he's going to be underneath Pro Circuit's rig. That's not a secret. It's not privy information. My point is, is literally Seth is leaning on me to tell him what to eat and when. Mm. Okay, he just drove 12 hours today to go a, to a regional so that he can race again this weekend. Right before I got on the phone with you, he literally called me and said, we just got to the hotel. What should I do? All right. So we outlined what he's going to do exercise wise, what he's going to do from foam rolling standpoint and what he's going to eat for dinner. My point is, is he didn't have to think about it. It was a five minute phone call that said, tell me what to do. Yeah. I have to, I have to put together a report for Kawasaki and for Mitch Payton and all of his sponsors, I have to give a report on his performance progress every week. Whether or not they read it or not is irrelevant, but it's required. When I'm putting that person, when I'm putting those reports together, the idea here is, is I'm promising Mitch and Cowie and Monster and everybody else that he's on track to being ready to go to an outdoor national with 30 plus two with one hour break. Now, Seth doesn't want to worry about, am I training too hard or too easy? He doesn't want to know if he should eat one avocado or five avocados. He's pretty much opening up his schedule going, eat this, do this, sleep this long. And then what I do is every morning, well, that's not a true statement. Three times a day, I look at his heart rate data. Because when he wears it at night, first thing when I get in the office, I look at his sleep data. He does his first workout of the day, which is usually seat time. He texts me. All he does is he texts me the word done. When he's done, his phone is already synced. I look at his 
I look at his workout on the motorcycle, how long, how hard, average and max heart rate. And as you know, the watches tell us the temperature and the humidity. He gives me his body weight before and after, and he tells me how many ounces of fluids he consumed. I calculate his sweat rate. I then, while he's eating lunch, I calculate that information. While he's done with lunch, I then set up his afternoon workout based on his fatigue levels, based on what he did earlier in the day. Then he does that second cross-training workout. He eats what we ask him to eat, and then he goes to bed. And we do that seven days a week yeah, all the way through the year. So that's for somebody who's 18 that doesn't want to deal with nutrition and doesn't want to deal with what to do when and how long and how hard. All I did was I said, we got to get you a watch and then you've got to follow what I send you. And he's like, that's all I need to do. Yeah. And then he does all this. Most people know he trains at the goat farm. So we manage most of the amateurs at the goat farm. So what he does is he trains under the toolage of Jeannie. And then we bounce that against the concept of residual fatigue. And then what I do is I add up how many hours a week he does. And we report that we show incremental improvement. We show regressions. We show body composition measurements every six weeks. We do certain field testing. So Mitch can see his percentage of improvement, strength to weight ratios, time to fatigue, max heart rate adjustments, resting heart rate numbers. You know, a lot of people don't realize how smart Mitch Payton is. He's, he's one of the smartest, most brilliant guys in the sport. And Mitch yeah. will tell you he's not interested in hiring a trainer for his riders. Mitch has been very vocal about that. He says, I pay a rider. You go get the resources you need. Mm. He's not asking the rider to source where he gets his medals from. Yeah. You know, the metal he makes his engine casings and his pipes from. And he always says, why should I manage who you work with? Yeah. That's your responsibility. And I take that very seriously because I realize it's a multi-million dollar program that Mitch is running over there. And he's relying on our guy to be in it. Like you said, finish a set, a a season, not broken (laughs) and able to represent very well. And people need to understand that it's, it's not a, it seems very glamorous, but it becomes a raw reality really quick when you realize if Seth goes out and has a good appearance, Mitch has got more leverage to get more sponsorship revenue. More sponsorship revenue means he can pay the riders more money and bonuses, and it's a win-win-win all the way around. And that's when I feel like, hey, I'm bringing more money to the table for Seth, not because he's paying me more, but because his bonus structures are based on performance. Mm. And I think that's a very, very important part for people to understand. And I believe, this is my biased opinion, I believe that all – performance coaches should only be on a commission basis. So if they're really invested in the athlete's durability and longevity, yeah, then they're going to do it the right way. Because like anything, you, you see it with these pro riders, they get big contracts, they become complacent, they become arrogant, they get cocky, and they blow it every time. And that's why Mitch only does flat salary for everybody and everything is performance-based. You want to make millions? Perfect. Win races. Yeah. And I totally agree with him on that. Always have, always will. I think everybody yeah. should get a one-year deal, and it's always performance-based. And then everybody's in. You give these guys two, three, four-year deals. Yeah, like what? Got, yeah, well, like you say, they become complacent. It's, it's. They've got that comfort and certainty there. Well, think about it. Some of the top guys, their base salary right now is anywhere between two to five million dollars. 
Mm. Well, if you're making $1.2 million a year, that's a hundred thousand dollars a month. Yeah. <laughs> you've got If you've got guaranteed salary coming in the door and you just really don't care about racing or, Oh, I've got a, an ingrown hair. I can't race today, but you still get guaranteed income. Yeah. Where, where's, where's the incentive? Yeah, for sure. And, and let's not forget, you're talking kids that are under 20 years old. Mm. Yeah. They don't really understand the value of a dollar. They say they no. do, but they don't. Yeah. <laughs> There's no 19 year old that understands the value of a $1.2 million deal. Yeah. And remember, that's just OEM money. That's not gear money. That's not goggles. That's not boots. That's not drink companies. That's not on and on and on it goes. But I think you give somebody that's 17, 18 years old, a two year deal for a couple million dollars a year guaranteed. That's why you see people that are like, <laughs> I don't feel good. I don't think I'm going to race today. Yeah. Why should they race? They're going to get a hundred thousand dollars this month. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you say, there's no incentive there for them to perform. And the teams put themselves in their own pickle because now the rider doesn't like the bike, refuses to ride and just doesn't ride because he's going to get his money. Yeah. That's just the way it works. So I just hope people understand the bigger, bigger side of things. So. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, lots I guess like, it is lots of fun, but it's important to have someone, I guess, in your corner that that's like, or perhaps like tread the path before it can guide you. Well, and that's why we said earlier in the podcast, I hope people will really look at the credentials of who you're hiring and be able to have a, you know, almost like a business interview. That's why we don't pick up, we don't take any clients on until I do a one-on-one -on -one interview with them. Because, I mean, let's face it, sometimes people just don't click. I have no problem with that. Yeah. I don't want any that buyer's remorse or feel like they've been bait and switched. This is the way that I'm going to work. This is what I expect of you. And this is what you can expect of me. And as long as everything is out in the open and there's no surprises, we can take numbers and, you know, we always tease in our business, we're going to cash checks and crack some necks. You know, we're going places, we're going to do stuff. But that whole idea here is I want the individual to understand what is the 10,000 foot view? What are we trying to do? Well, when you fill out a new client profile and you tell me these are your goals, we're going to make your goals a reality. How frustrating is it when you go into a massage therapist and you say your lower back hurts and the massage therapist works on your legs because they like to work on legs and you're telling them that your back hurts. I don't even like to use the word trainers because it's overused, but human performance coaches need to keep that in mind. What is it that is the biggest hurdle of opportunity for the athlete and make sure that that manifests itself. Mm. And I want everybody who's looking to get a performance coach such as yourself credentials speak volumes. I have no problems if somebody calls me up and says, you know, give me, let me talk to two or three of your past clients. Obviously I'll ask for permission and then pass that information on. Yeah. But when someone wants to, to check, that's a, an athlete that I want to work with. Yeah, These yeah. people that know that they're hiring somebody who has no credentials, but he rode for a factory team. Now all of a sudden that makes him a physiologist, a nutritionalist, a sports psychologist, what the hell? I mean, just as I said in the last podcast, I read my manual to my 250F, so Mitt should put me on as a factory mechanic. I mean, just because you go to a weekend certification course doesn't make you experienced enough. And that's what I see happening is you have people that are ex-pros, they go get a weekend certificate, they hear something about, let's take gluten or dairy or some little, little niche, 
and they make that their platform as to why they're so unique. Really? Mm. I mean, that, that's just totally bogus. And everything that we've even talked about in today's podcast, you know, you can see that there's a lot of slivers, but collectively they've all got to work together. And I hope people that are listening understand that, you know, we're not trying to be blowhards. We're not trying to embellish a lot of information, but when you tell me your frustration is you worked with this person and you never got leaner, did they ever tell you why you didn't get leaner? Did they ever tell you the truth about getting lean? Did, you know, let's say your sprint speed never get got better. Did your human performance coach understand having heart rate zones specific to the modality that you're using for training? Cause if he does, he or she will be able to get you to where you want to be. Not just always keep you at, you know, I, I got to have you so that I can get somewhere. I always want to be able to empower these athletes in, in, with information. And that's, that's just got to be the number one priority. So you're doing Absolutely. a great job. Man. Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. Appreciate your time. Better let you go. We've been on for a while now. So no worries. But, Thanks to all the listeners. And again, thank you for the opportunity. I'm looking forward to our next one. Yeah, me too, Rob. If, uh, and to the listeners, any more questions, just shoot them through because we'll get, we'll get, make sure we've still got a few to get through, um, but we'll tack the new ones on and we'll keep answering them as they come in. Absolutely. Please keep them coming and thanks for supporting the podcast. We deeply appreciate it. Cheers, Rob. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Ben Greenwood High Performance Podcast. For more information on this podcast episode, please check out the show notes and to check out more of my content, shoot over to my website, www.100percentstrength. That's www.100percentstrength.com. 100% strength to us means giving 100% effort to any challenge we face whether that's in life, whether that's in the gym, or whether that's out on the track. So you can check out some of our free content online. We've got a blog there. We've also got an email list you can subscribe to to stay up to date with events, tips and tricks on a weekly basis. And I'd really appreciate if you give us a follow on Facebook or Insta too. Until the next episode, give it 100%. Peace out.